I invite you to turn in your Bibles along with me this morning to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. We'll read the entirety of Psalm 130, and the whole psalm will be our text for this morning. This is the word of our God. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, and my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Congregation loved by our Lord and by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 130 was the favorite psalm of men such as St. Augustine and John Calvin John Owen and John Bunyan. It's one of the penitential psalms. It finds itself in the genre of psalms called the Psalms of Penitence. And that means as a psalm of penitence that the psalmist is confessing his sins to the Lord. The psalm also meant a great deal to the great reformer Martin Luther. And there is an interesting story from Martin Luther he was once asked by his colleagues which psalms were the best. And Martin Luther, and if, you, if you've read of anything of him or read about him, uh, he was n- never one to give a dull answer to a question. He always uh, was quite witty. And he said this when he, asked, he was asked the question, which psalms were the best? He said the best psalms are the Pauline psalms, the psalms of Paul. Well, which ones are those, Mr. Luther? He said, well, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and Psalm 130 and Psalm 143. Now, boys and girls, can you uh, see how this is maybe an odd answer to give? Which are the best psalms? The Pauline psalms, the psalms of Paul? That doesn't work, right? Paul was the writer of the epistles of the New Testament. The psalms are are the Old Testament. Well, what Martin Luther meant, and this is what he said, For these psalms teach us that the forgiveness of sins is granted to them that believe without the law and without works. And if we know uh, the story of Martin Luther's life, his own experience, it makes good sense as to why he would say this. 
because his life was so changed and transformed by the biblical teaching that we are saved by grace and not of our works, that the forgiveness of sins is all of God. Martin Luther was so changed by that that it left this um, such a lasting impression on him. Because Martin Luther, before he understood that we were saved by grace through faith, he was a monk, and he was a monk in the monastery. And he had a brilliant legal mind. He had a genius mind, which meant that Martin Luther knew how much he didn't keep God's law. Martin Luther was well aware of how often he broke God's law by the things he did and by the things he didn't do. And so in order to have peace in his heart, to deal with this overwhelming sense of guilt, Martin Luther became the super monk in the monastery. When some monks would fast for three days, he would fast for six days. Martin Luther would spend hours upon hours upon hours confessing each and every sin that he knew he committed to the priest. He would beat his body walking or on his knees. He would crawl up the the steps, the hard stone steps. He would sleep on on the hard rock uh, ground without any blanket in the cold. All these different ways that he was trying to make atonement, to try to appease his own guilt for sin. And so when he understood in his teaching of Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, the study of it, that we're saved not by works, but by grace, he became a new man. And The gospel of grace so excited him. And so Psalm 130 was one of his favorite psalms. And Psalm 130 presents the gospel so beautifully and powerfully, and that's why it's a well-loved psalm of many. And we read here in the psalm title that it is a song of ascents. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's a collection of psalms in the Psalter that the called the Songs of Ascent, that the pilgrims would sing as they ascended, as they went up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Maybe you've gone on on a a long trip and uh, you make a a playlist of songs for the road. Back in the day, we would make mixtapes, songs for the road. These are traveling songs, and this is what's Psalm 130 and the Song of Ascents were. They were the original hill songs, songs that you would sing as you go up to the mountain, up to the temple for worship. And so uh, in this, it prepared their hearts for worship. And the fact that it's a song of ascent is actually significant even for the the mood of, of this particular psalm, as we're going to see. Because Here in Psalm 130, the psalmist starts very, very low. He is down, 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 down in the depths. As he says, "I out of the depths I cry to you. But as he focuses his heart and his mind upon the Lord, he comes up from the depths. He, He ascends up out of the depths into a moment of declaring that his hope and joy is in the Lord. So it starts in darkness, it ends in the light. And so what we have in this psalm is that the pilgrim seeks the Lord in his distress. The pilgrim seeks the Lord in his distress. And that's our theme for this morning. We'll examine this in in four points. First of all, 
the psalmist's distress, verses 1 to 2. Secondly, the psalmist's dilemma, verses 3 and 4. Uh, thirdly, the psalmist's determination, verse 5 and 6. And then lastly, the psalmist's deliverance in verses 7 and 8. The psalmist's distress, his dilemma, determination, and deliverance. First of all, let's look at the psalmist's distress. We look at verse 1 and 2. What does he say? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. As mentioned, the psalmist is down. And he is really, really down. He is discouraged. He is despondent. He is depressed. He is down in the dumps. He is overwhelmed by the sea of troubles that he is experiencing. Now, there's a number of reasons that we can feel down, discouraged. Uh, To be human is to be in trouble, as one person has said. We might be discouraged because of health challenges and difficulties. We might be down because of relationship friction and turmoil. We might be down because of the, the state of our society and our culture. There are many reasons we might be down. The psalmist is down in other places because he's homesick. He's struggling with loneliness. He is afraid because of enemies and persecution. In this particular psalm, he is down because of his sin. Now, not every time we feel down discouraged is because of our sins. Sometimes we, there's a whole genre of psalms called psalms of lament in which we can express our sorrow and our, our struggle to the Lord and we're given the sound bites, the words to say, to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm really struggling here. Many reasons we might feel discouraged and down, but in this particular psalm, he is down, down, down because of his own sin, the sin that he has committed. Now, boys and girls, can you think of another character in the Bible who is down, literally down, 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 in the depths because of his sin? Here's a clue. He's down at the bottom of the ocean in a fish that has actually rescued him from drowning. It's Jonah. Actually, these same, these same words, out of the depths, I cry to you, are said by Jonah as he is in the belly of the fish, as the Lord is teaching Jonah some important lessons. Jonah, remember, did everything he could to disobey the word of the Lord. He was commanded to go to Nineveh to preach, and Jonah went in the exact opposite direction. The Lord is chasing Jonah down, and there is Jonah at the bottom of the sea. Now, what's amazing about this and important to note that for everything Jonah did wrong, for all the many ways he disobeyed the Lord, he didn't obey the Lord, Jonah does something right when he's in the belly of the fish. When he says, out of the depths I called you. What he does right is that he prays, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing to realize. Jonah knows that he has sinned against the Lord. Jonah knows that he is experiencing the just discipline of the Lord. But Jonah also knows that the Lord is merciful. And so Jonah is doing the right thing because he prays. Although he has sinned a whole lot, he knows he can still pray because his God is a God of mercy. And there's something that happens, isn't it, dear friends, when we find ourselves in the depths, in the dark depths. Something does occur. The Lord 
works in our hearts, often in extraordinary ways. Spurgeon says this, The depths of their distress moves the depth of their being, and from the bottom of their hearts an exceeding great and bitter cry rises unto the one true living God. It's often when we're down at the depths, when we've hit rock bottom, when we acknowledge that we cannot do anything ourselves, when the only thing we can do is cry. We cry. But the Lord, by His Spirit, works mightily and powerfully in these moments. And this is what the psalmist says. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. I cry to you. I plead to you, Lord. As we think about prayer and how prayer is us bringing our, our thanksgivings and adoration and requests to the Lord. Prayer is a broader category, but there's also a category within prayer called petition, supplicate, which means to really pray, really plead, ask, to beg. And this is what the psalmist is doing. Out of the depths, at the lowest place, I cry, I plead, I supplicate to you, O Lord. And this is the right posture of faith. This is what Jonah does. And as we find ourselves in the depths, when we cry to the Lord, this is an expression of faith. And this is what we learn from Psalm 130. That we cry out to the Lord, the God of mercy, in our time of distress. Now this is a a question for application here. Do we cry out to the Lord in our distress? When we're struggling with our sin, the effects of sin, the addictive nature of sin. See, what we can do is that we go to all other places except to the Lord to deal with our sin, our guilt, our shame. If guilt is I've done wrong because of my sin, shame is I am wrong because of my sin. And we can be very misdirected in going to other places to deal with the sense of guilt and shame. But what the psalmist is directing us here to do is to cry to the Lord. We can always go to the Lord as we struggle in our sin with a heart of repentance. Now, this brings us to our second point, the psalmist's dilemma. The psalmist's dilemma, he cries out to the Lord, but he acknowledges the situation that he's in. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. The psalmist's dilemma is his sin. This is his problem. Now, we might say our biggest problem is our own suffering. And our suffering is a problem. We live in a broken in Genesis 3 world. But we must remember that our, our deepest problem, ultimately, is always our own sin. The fact that we have offended a holy, holy God, we have sinned against his character and his law, and we cannot make atonement, we cannot cleanse ourselves from the guilt and stain of this sin, as Shakespeare says in Hamlet, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? All the waters of the ocean cannot clean this hand, cannot make atonement, And this is what the psalmist is saying. If you would mark iniquities, O Lord, if you would keep a log of my sin, 
who could stand? If you, if you kept track of everything, every sin of omission, when we don't do what we're called to do, remember we, read, we heard from the Summer of the Law, we're called to love the Lord our God supremely with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. How often do we do that perfectly? We're called to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, we're good at loving ourselves, but our neighbor as ourselves. These are sins of omission when we don't do what we're supposed to do. And there's a whole lot of sins of commission when we do what we're not supposed to do. We've heard from the law this morning. And this is, we read from Isaiah chapter 6, and this is what Isaiah is acknowledging. That's why we walk through that passage. As he, as he has this vision of, of, the, of the perfection and the righteousness and the holiness of, of this God. As he has an encounter with this thrice holy, holy God, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean, filthy lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have, but, have beheld this king. There is conviction. Isaiah is saying and knows what the psalmist says, Lord, if you would keep a log of my sins, if you would keep a tally of everything I've done wrong, who could stand? Lord, if you would deal with me in the way that I would deserve, I could not stand. I would be pronounced guilty. You would have the right to throw the book at me. You would have the right to condemn me. Actually, it would be unjust of you to not declare me guilty. See, the just judge just judges justly. Our God is a just judge because he is a God of holiness and perfection and righteousness. He cannot tolerate sin. He is without sin. He's perfectly holy in himself, which means that our God is a God of justice. And he is the only one who is completely righteous. Have you ever gotten in an argument, a debate? What's at the heart of that? Well, because you believed you were right, right? You don't, you don't get in an argument or a debate if you think that you're wrong. I, I'm in the right, but what I say is, is the right thing. I, I am right. We, we want to be right, Often we're not right, and we're never completely right. But only God, only the Lord, is, is right, always right. He is right in himself. He thinks right. He does right. He is always right. He is the standard of righteousness, which means, congregation, there is a standard of righteousness, which means this, our God is a God of justice. Now, there's a whole lot of injustice that happens in our world, and we can struggle with this. This seems so wrong. This doesn't balance the scales of justice. Why do these wicked people seem to get off easy and innocent folk seem to take all the hurt? Psalmists wrestle with this. Psalm 73. This is a struggle that people can have, even with Christianity. It doesn't seem to be just the suffering, the evil in this world. But congregation, because we worship a God of justice, we can believe, we, and we must believe, justice will be served in the end. In, in the end. 
That's the thing. This is why the Lord tells us, vengeance is mine. Don't take revenge. You must trust me that I am a God of justice, and I will execute justice in the end. And brothers and sisters, we can know this and believe this because our God is a God of justice. He is the just judge who just judges justly, and you and I, who are sinners and who are guilty as charged, can have forgiveness of sins and a right standing with God because justice has been served at the cross. See, this is why we, we talk about the cross. This is why we talk about Jesus so much. Because what happened at the cross, that Jesus, who lived a perfect life, never sinned against any of the commandments, loved his God the Father perfectly, always submitted to the Father's will, who loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. Jesus is the incarnation of love. Jesus, who never did anything wrong, he goes to that cross and he bears the penalty, the pain and the shame for sin. Not because he was the sinner. No, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He does this in a substitutionary way. He is the mediator. So he takes upon himself all the sins of God's people throughout all of history, the gazillions and billions of sin. And he takes them upon himself and he pays the price. He absorbs the wrath. This word is propitiate. He absorbs the just wrath of God for all of our sin. So God is the just and the justifier of the ungodly. And because justice is served, Because Jesus pays the price. See, for all of our sins, someone's going to have to pay. Either you're going to pay forever in hell for your sin, or Jesus pays. There's only two ways. But Jesus paid that price. And therefore, the scales of justice are balanced. And because justice is satisfied, mercy can be extended. It's at the cross where justice and mercy kiss. And this is why, this is why we celebrate the cross. This is why we look to Jesus, because only in Jesus can you and I have forgiveness of sins. Only in Jesus on the cross can the just penalty for our sin be paid. And that's what the psalmist, even before the cross, this is what he's looking forward to. And this is why he can say and believe there is this thing called forgiveness. The psalmist is struggling with his sin, but what does he say? But with you, there is forgiveness, that you might be feared. Because of what happens at the cross, sins can be pardoned. The slate can be wiped clean. We've been speaking about all, all our sins of omission and commission. Say, say there was a video of everything you've done wrong, not, not only the things you've done wrong but in terms of what you've said, but the thoughts that you've had, and all of it is made on the video and put on YouTube, and it goes potentially viral. You'd be horrified. There'd be things on that video you didn't even really know that you did, the people you hurt. Imagine it's about to go viral, but before that happens, it's deleted. It's trashed. It's completely gone, never recoverable again. That's a picture of what forgiveness is. The psalmist is saying here, with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are to be feared. 
Because forgiveness is possible, and it's a reality for all those who put their trust in the Lord. You are to be feared. Now, what does this word mean, feared, the fear of God? Well, theologians have made a distinction between a servile fear and a filial fear. Servile is the type of fear that a servant would have for his master. I don't want to do anything wrong. I don't want to offend my master because my, my master could punish me. That's not the type of fear this is. This is a filial fear, F-I-L-I-A-L, and that's a family word. A filial fear meaning that one has such an awe and reverence for the Lord that he or she doesn't want to do anything to offend him. That he or she loves the Lord, that he or she wants to do everything he or she can to please him. Now understand, this filial fear, it's, it's the same fear that a, a respect a, a son will have for his father that he loves. He doesn't want to disappoint his father. Now, there's still this sense of awe and respect. But the judge of the world who could throw the book at you and send you in hell forever is your Savior who has paid the price for your sin. And not only is he your Savior, he is also your Father who has adopted you. And he loves you with this fatherly care. He is Almighty God and faithful Father. And so this filial fear, the fear of the Lord, as we recognize our total dependence upon the Lord, that he is very, very, very big, and we are very, very, very small, and he is very, very, very holy, and we are not holy, but yet we can come to this Father. We can know him as our provider because of what he has done for us. I mentioned Martin Luther before, earlier when he was teaching the biblical truth of the fact that we're justified, we're made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone. Some of his colleagues who would be opponents say, Martin Luther, if you preach grace this strong, people are just going to sin all the more. You got, you got to keep the sense of punishment before them because that keeps them from sinning. It's kind of like if you just get Get the fire insurance policy, and you can live however you want. And Martin Luther said, no, look at, look at Romans 6. After the Apostle Paul is singing about the wonder and the majesty of grace, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? He says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You know, if, if, if we think the gospel is, okay, we're saved by grace so we can just do whatever we want, sin's not a big deal, we haven't understood the gospel. We don't understand actually what forgiveness is. You know, say there's someone on death row, he's a convict, he's about to face the worst punishment for his crime, and he's given mercy, but if he just, you know, gets off and then just does it again, he hasn't understood what mercy is. See, justice is getting what we deserve, and mercy is not getting what we deserve. And a proper person who has been shown mercy will live a different life. 
And so this is the fear of the Lord. There is forgiveness with you, therefore you are feared. I love the Lord so much, I don't want to do anything to displease him. I want to walk in his ways. Psalm 34 says, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is what it is. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So this is another question for this morning. Do you know the fear of the Lord this morning? Do you have this awareness of your own holiness, your own culpability for your sin, in light of the perfection and majesty and perfection of your God? Are you disgusted by your sin? Or have you made sin? Have you made peace treaties with your sin? Now, there might be some sin you don't like, but there maybe these compartments of sin in your life you, you love. And you love more than the Lord. And you don't want to repent. You want to keep doing it because you find pleasure in it. This is the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will tell you it's more pleasurable and it's better, but it will leave you miserable in the end. And the fear of the Lord is saying, Lord, truly cleanse me. Make me by your spirit hate sin, all of it, like you hate sin. And may you by your spirit make me love what you love, love righteousness. And do you re- have a heart of repentance? See, this is what the psalm is saying. There is forgiveness. It's possible. And it's looking to the Savior. Jesus Christ, the man of all measure, it is only in him that our sins can be forgiven. And so this is what the psalmist is. This is the answer to the dilemma. It's looking to Jesus. Where justice is satisfied on the cross. And because justice is satisfied, mercy is given. Lastly, we look at the psalmist's determination. Or thirdly, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. He's saying because there's forgiveness, my soul waits. In his word I put my hope. In the Hebrew language, the, uh, this, there's a similar root word for our word, which is hope, and also wait. Actually, you look at different Bible translations. Uh, some translations will render a word hope. You look at another translation, it'll, it'll say wait. Uh, those words are, are closely connected because hope in the Lord is the same as waiting for the Lord. Hoping in the Lord is faith directed to the future with a sense of expectancy and certainty. This is why biblical hope is different than how we often use the word hope. We will use the word hope as, in a way, of of wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow and spoil my picnic for Labor Day. Well, you say that, I hope, but actually the forecast might be that it rains. So you're, you're actually hoping that it's going to be in your favor, but it, it likely might rain. So there's, there's no real sense of certainty about that. You're, just, you're hopeful. It's wishful thinking. That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a sense of certainty, of confident expectation. And faith is living 
by what we don't always see. We live by faith, not by sight. So hope, waiting, is believing in certainty with what we don't always see. And this is why this image of the watchman is important. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. I think of the job of, of the watchman in the, uh, the ancient world. Very important job. Sit. His job was to sit on the city wall and watch. Watch, 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 watch. Watch, watch, watch. Watch in the, di- for the, in the distance to ensure that no enemies come during the night. To be watching to ensure that no one gets out of the city, stumbles out of the city by accident, and therefore uh, be in danger. Such an important job. Now, maybe some of you have been security guards. Maybe not the most exciting job. It can be a boring job. Watching, 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 waiting, waiting, waiting. But there's a sense of certainty and expectation. Because the psalmist says here, more than watchmen wait for the morning. As long as the night may be and as slow as the time might go by, morning will come. Morning will, will, will be here eventually. And there's a time where the watchman says, morning is broken. I go home. I'm done my shift. So th- there is this sense of, of expectancy knowing that morning will come. Because morning always has come. And that's the the image the psalmist uses here. A sense of certainty, of expectation. Why? Because the God who we put our hope in is a God who is always faithful to his promises. That is the story of Scripture, that every promise the Lord makes, he fulfills. He doesn't go back. He doesn't renege on any of his promises. In fact, he is so faithful to his promises that he will send his Son from heaven to earth to die. This is how faithful God is, that he is the great promise keeper. And so we can have this trust in the Lord. And the second aspect of of waiting upon the Lord, of hoping in the Lord, is to persevere in it. To endure in the waiting. This might be one of the hardest aspects of the Christian life is to wait. Maybe you're waiting for something. Maybe you have been praying to the Lord for a long time. A change of circumstance, a change of the heart of a family member. There's all kinds of things we are waiting for. And it just doesn't happen. It's not occurring on your timetable. And this is one of... uh, One of the ways the Lord grows us, when he puts us in the classroom of waiting, when we pray in belief, but we must wait upon the Lord's timetable for what we pray for to come to pass. And waiting is a very difficult thing. Lord, give me patience and give it to me now, we say, right? And it's a very hard thing in this society because we live in a weightless society. Everything is fast. We want things immediately. And so the danger is, is that in this particular society here and now, living here, we lose the capacity to wait. But think about this watchman. He is earnest, and he perseveres in waiting. He doesn't give up in the middle of the night. He doesn't get distracted by something happening. He has his eyes focused on the horizon. Why? Because he loves the city. 
He loves the citizens of the city. He loves the king of the city. So he will wait in earnest endurance and perseverance. And congregation, that is the picture for us here. That we must put our hope, we must wait on the Lord. Understand, if we are in the classroom of waiting, and all of you will be in that classroom at some point, we're all going to find ourselves waiting for something. The, the, the Old Testament is full of God's people waiting, 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 waiting. Abraham, waiting, waiting, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. But what do we learn, particularly in the life of Abraham? A- Abraham, with hope against hope, he put his hope in the Lord's promises. That the Lord, in this time of waiting, will actually strengthen our faith. The wait can be long, the wait can be hard. Our spiritual muscles must endure, but it's in that process of waiting that these spiritual muscles get stronger and fortified. And we're all waiting, aren't we? We're waiting. The whole testament is God's people waiting for the king to come, and now we are waiting for King Jesus to come back. So much of the Christian life is waiting. But understand, it's not so much what we get at the end of the wait that's important, but it's who we become as we wait. What is the Lord doing? How is he changing and transforming us as we put our hope, as we wait for him? Waiting is a good thing. It's one of the best of things. Cheer up. You have a whole lot less control in your world than you think you have. The Lord is in control. He's got the whole world in his hands, including your world. And you're waiting. As it is hard. But he is a good and a faithful God. And he is carrying the world on his shoulders. And he is the king of kings. Spurgeon would say, If the Lord Jehovah makes us wait, let us do so. Wait with all whole hearts. For blessed are all they that wait for him. He is worth waiting for. And the waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tries faith. It exercises patience. It trains submission. And it endears the blessing when it comes. The Lord's people have always been a waiting people. They waited for the first advent, and now they wait for the second. So there are good things happening in the wait. And so the psalmist is determined to wait. And lastly, as we look at the last section of the psalm, the psalmist celebrates deliverance. Verse 7 to 8. O O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is a command here. The psalmist is commanding Israel. O Israel, O church today, put your hope in the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. For with him there is steadfast love. This word steadfast love is a, is a word ESV translated, translates that as steadfast love. That's a very good translation. But again, it's one of these words, if you look in different Bible translations, it'll be rendered a bit differently. Loyal love, covenantal loving kindness, enduring love. And the reason why we have different translations of this word is because the Hebrew word hesed is so rich, it's so deep, it's so variegated in meaning, we can't actually find one English word that encapsulates it. But it is referring to this faithful, covenantal, enduring, persevering, never giving up love of God. As the Child Children's Storybook Bible 
says it's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, loyal, lavish, covenantal love of God. And this full redemption rests upon his unfading love. As Calvin would say, the foundation upon which we would have the hope of all the godly is to rest on the mercy of God, which is the source from which all redemption brings. And where do we see this love? We see it at the cross. Where do we see this steadfast, never-breaking, never-giving-up, loyal, pursuing, persevering love of God? It's at the cross. The cross is the pulpit of God's love. And here, with him, there is plentiful redemption. That word is important. Full redemption. Abundant. Plenteous redemption. The Lord's not a, a cheapskate. He's not frugal. He's not stingy in his redemption. No, it's his plentiful, abundant Much redemption. He is gracious and lavish with his love. And that's the God that we serve. Spurgeon and other places said, There is forgiveness. Let this whisper drive away despair. And what a blessed whisper it is. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Let it enter your soul and drive, he says, those grim ogres and hobgoblins of despair away into the sea of forgetfulness. There is forgiveness. See, this is where we go back to the beginning of this psalm. The psalmist is in the depths. He is despondent because of his sin. But he cries to the Lord. And with the Lord there is forgiveness because he is a God of steadfast, abundant love. And may that drive these ogres and hobgoblins of despair away, says Spurgeon. Because we put our trust in our God of all grace. And we look to him for his extravagant, his abundant his merciful, indelible grace. And so look to this great God of love and follow him and walk in a way that is pleasing to him as you know the fear of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm, Psalm 130. And we thank you for the message of it that with you there is full redemption and that there is forgiveness with you And therefore, you are to be feared. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for grace. We acknowledge that if it was just a matter matter of justice, none of us would see salvation. We thank you that you are a God of justice and of mercy and of grace. And so, if there are some here this morning that do not know you as a God of grace, a God of Psalm 130, Lord, may you change them by your Spirit. And so help us, O Lord, to find our great joy in following and living for you. In Jesus' name, 